Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Noah Skavronik, Assistant Professor at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Noah is a co-author on a recent paper that estimates the effects of climate change on heat-related human mortality over the last 30 years. The paper covers dozens of countries and assesses how increased moderate and extreme heat has affected people's health on every populated continent. We'll also talk about the ways in which people can adapt to these risks and how the potential health benefits of fewer cold days compare to increased risks from more hot days. Stay with us. All right, Noah Skavronik from Emory University. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Noah, we're going to talk today about a a recent paper that you worked on with a variety of colleagues on uh, the health impacts and the heat-related impacts of climate change on human health. But before we uh, get into that paper and the really fascinating analysis, can you just tell us how you got interested in working on these issues in the first place? Yeah, of course. And to be honest, I can't actually really remember a time before I was a little bit obsessed with nature <laughs> and uh, probably with wildlife in particular. In fact, you know, I became a father earlier this year. So naturally, I went digging around in my parents' basement to find the old children's books that I kept all these years. <laughs> and just about all of them were animal stories of one sort or another, often taking place in a jungle or the Great Plains or the Serengeti or somewhere like that. And you know, that feeling hasn't really gone away. But what I think I can do is pinpoint when I made the transition from wanting a career more, you know, as an ecologist to one focusing on the human dimensions of environmental issues. And that was really, you know, my first job out of college was as a research assistant studying primate locomotion in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And I showed up there fully thinking I was going to be the next Jane Goodall. And I was tasked with sitting on top of a canopy platform to wait for any of, you know, one of three species of monkeys to just wander by at the perfect height, at the perfect angle, so I could film their movement. And as you can imagine, that didn't happen very often. And in fact, I don't even think I managed a single usable frame of video. But day after day, yeah, I would sit up there alone waiting. And after a month or two, or, you know, on the sixth or seventh hour of a viciously hot day with sweat bees crawling up my nose and in my eyes, I had this epiphany that I might be a little better suited to something that involved people and included some occasional social interaction. And that's sort of where environmental health came into the picture. And I guess, yeah, here I am. That's great. That's a great story. That's so, so funny. And, and congratulations on, uh, on becoming a dad. That's really fantastic. Thank you very much. It'll be a year next month. Oh, great. Um, yeah, my little dude will turn three in uh, in about two months, so um, so nice. I'm not too far ahead of you, and <laughs> yeah. um, I hope you're getting some sleep. So uh, so let's get into uh, to this recent paper. Um, so as our audience knows very well, climate change and air pollution and other impacts of energy development. Uh, and greenhouse gas emissions can affect human health in lots of different ways. Today, we're going to talk about this paper that I've mentioned uh, that's called The Burden of Heat-Related Mortality, Attributable to Recent Human-Induced Climate Change, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, of course. Um, 
So, but before we get into the analysis itself and some of the key results, can you just like give us some intuition and help us, uh, for those of us who don't remember anything uh, from biology or human health classes, um, what's the physiology of heat and in terms of how it affects humans and how can heat increase health risks for people? Yeah, that's a great question. And before I answer, let me just give some relevant background information that I think will be helpful as I sort of go into the particulars. So the scientific evidence shows us that health impacts occur not only at extreme temperatures, like during a heat wave, which we hear a lot about, but also at relatively moderate temperatures that we experience on a much more regular basis. And what that means is that the increase in health problems that we see is not only from heat stroke or other forms of heat stress that we might normally think about, but it also occurs from many other types of diseases at the same time. So in our studies, we see links with cardiovascular disease and respiratory disease and kidney disease, and even with mental health outcomes, as well as some others. So that tells us that there probably is not a single physiological pathway that's responsible for the heat health relationships sort of as a whole, but that heat acts on the body in a variety of ways, some more direct and some that are much more subtle. So for example, heat exposure may influence dehydration and dehydration-related diseases. That's something obviously we would expect, but it could also act on the body through pathways like changes in heart rate or constriction or dilation of blood vessels or even where blood is concentrated in the body. And in addition, heat effects may manifest differently in different people. So for instance, it may affect a little baby differently than a middle-aged adult or an elderly person or a person with an underlying illness. Mm -hmm. Great, that's really helpful. And so as we talk about the way that you know climate change has affected uh, heat and, and in turn people's health, um, one thing that is always really interesting to me is how people have adapted over time uh, to, to the places where they live, uh, which have very different temperatures. So obviously people live all, all over the world, some in really, really hot places, some in really cold places. Um, can you give us a general sense of how people have adapted over time, particularly to eat? Sure. So once you stop to think about it, you realize that people adapt to outdoor temperatures in a huge variety of ways. So sometimes it's behavioral, like the time of day when people work outside or decide to play basketball or go for a run, or it might even be the type of clothing we wear or the color of that clothing. So, you know, that's one way that people adapt more on the behavioral level. But there are also several other forms of adaptation. So another example is related to our built environment, like what building materials we use. So. You know, you may have had the experience of walking into a traditional stone farmhouse and being surprised that even on a super hot day, it can be cool and refreshing in there, much cooler and refreshing even than some of, you know, the more modern buildings. And we see evidence of this sort of adaptation in our study. So, for example, in many warm locations, places where it's, you know, the climate is warmer, a 90 degree day may not be a big deal in terms of health problems, but in a colder climate, the impact of a 90 degree, 90 degree day can sometimes be quite severe. So, and then of course, there's this issue about the use of air conditioning, which a number of studies have shown to be very effective at reducing heat related mortality and morbidity. Now, unfortunately, air conditioning is not a reality for everyone, since air conditioners and the power needed to run them may not be affordable. So, 
those are some of the adaptation strategies that we you know think about when we're doing studies on the impacts of heat but those are not necessarily planned in any sort of coordinated way but there are opportunities to do that so for example we could enact specific and targeted policies to minimize heat impacts that could be through heat wave warning systems public health messaging or infrastructure improvements and so on and those types of interventions also have the ability to make an impact and especially as we learn more and more about how to design those things in a way that's as effective as possible that's widely accessible you know that's easy to use and that sort of thing and that's really an active area of research in environmental health right now particularly in, with people who are interested in climate change now in terms of actual physiological adaptation to heat i would say that's much more of an open question and something that probably needs more investigation and something i hope to see more of you know more more knowledge about that in the coming years because that may also prove to be something that's relevant to this conversation yeah that's that's really interesting i mean we know that right for example athletes can physiologically adapt to you know run at certain altitudes or you know cope with certain weather conditions but uh it sounds like you're saying it's still an open question as to whether the sort of general population might be able to adapt in that in a similar way yeah exactly i think you you know, we're still trying to figure out how to design studies like that for the general population. And also, you know, there are questions about how long that adaptation lasts and, you know, how far, to what extent does it really exist in terms of, you know, what's the range of temperatures where it may actually play a role and, and is it possible to move beyond that in some way that we may be worried about? Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, so we're going to talk about the results of your uh, study in, in just one moment. But first, uh, I think it would be useful for folks to know a little bit about the methods you use to, to estimate how climate change has affected uh, people's health in terms of heat-related impacts. So can you give us a sense of you know, how you estimated these effects and also let us know what geographies you covered? Absolutely. So let me take the second part of that question first. So this study used data from over 700 locations in 43 countries. And by location here, I mean a city or a district or some other relatively small area within one of those countries. And those 43 countries were spread across every continent, except, you know, of course, for Antarctica. So in that sense, we had truly exceptional geographic coverage compared to other studies like this. But of course, you know, there are still big parts of the world where we didn't have the data we needed, such as India and most of Africa and some other areas. Now, to estimate the impact that climate change has had on heat-related mortality in those locations, we used a method that's actually conceptually quite simple. So first, we used real data from each location to estimate the relationship between heat and mortality. And we then applied those relationships to two different sets of modeled temperature data over the study period, which was 1991 to 2018. So one set of the model temperature data we can call the factual scenario. And that reflects the real situation that was actually experienced by people, meaning that it accounted for our emissions of greenhouse gases, which of course warmed the world during the study period. The second set of temperature estimates, on the other hand, it was based on a hypothetical scenario where humans did not emit greenhouse gases or do any of the other types of climate altering activities that we think about when we think about climate change. And then we calculated the difference in summer heat related mortality between those two scenarios. 
and that gave us our estimates of the mortality burden that was attributable to climate change. So that was the basic approach. But just to be clear, what it means is that the you know relatively large climate change impacts on mortality can occur in a given location if the population of that location is either particularly sensitive to heat or if that location experienced a particularly high level of warming during the study period. And if both were true at the, in the same location, the effects were especially bad. Great. And can you maybe just elaborate a little bit on what you mean when you say uh, a, a region or a location that is particularly sensitive to heat? Like, what are the factors that lead people in a certain location to be particularly sensitive? Yeah, so some of some of the factors may have to do with some of the adaptation strategies we've already talked about. So which of those have been implemented? It may have to do with, you know, the equality and availability of health services. It may have to do with the age of the population or even, you know, what types of jobs people are doing, whether they're inside or outside and that sort of thing. And we've also seen that, as I mentioned, you know, sort of implicitly before, warmer regions tend to be less sensitive to sort of the same level of heat as colder regions. But of course, here we're also talking about additional heat from human-caused climate change. Got it. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. Um, so, so let's get into some of those top-line results now, um, estimating how climate change has affected heat-related mortality over the last, you know, almost thirty years. What are some of the top-level results, and how do they vary across different parts of the world? Yeah. So across all study locations, we found that about a third of all heat deaths over our study period were attributable to climate change. So that equates to nearly 10,000 deaths each year in our study location. And that means that many cities, you know, for many of those locations, many of those cities, dozens or sometimes even more than 100 heat deaths each year are already linked to climate change. So in terms of variation in different parts of the world, there was widespread evidence of climate impacts across our study locations. But there were certain hot spots, you know, for lack of a better term, that did stand out. So, for example, locations in southern Europe showed particularly high burdens. There was also some indication of burdens increasing from north to south within regions, at least in the northern hemisphere where we had more more data. But that finding is something that could use more investigation. But, you know, it's a very intriguing result as well. That's that's really interesting. So let's talk now about some of the headline results. And I know you have results from all over the world, 43 countries, as you said, so it's difficult to, to summarize. But can you give us a sense of um, what some of the top line results were and how they might have varied in different parts of the world? Sure, absolutely. So we found that across all study locations, about a third of all heat deaths over the study period were attributable to climate change. And the number in the U.S. was similar to that one-third number, whereas some countries like Kuwait, Guatemala, and the Philippines were much higher, and other locations, for example, in China, were a bit lower. Now, a third of all heat deaths across all of our study countries equates to nearly 10,000 deaths annually, just within the locations we looked at. So that means that in many of our cities, dozens or sometimes more than 100 heat deaths each year are already linked to climate change. So in terms of variation across different parts of the world, there was widespread evidence of climate impacts across the study countries, but there were certain hot spots. So for example, locations in Southern Europe showed particularly high burdens, 
There was also some indication of burdens increasing from north to south within regions, at least in the northern hemisphere, which is a finding that's really intriguing but could use some more investigation. That's interesting. And when you say, um, you know, increasing from north to south within region, does that um, does that mean the northern parts of, let's say, the United States, for example, would experience more acute impacts than the southern part of the United States? Or can you elaborate on that a little bit? That is what our results were indicating. So, you know, Europe, I think we was one of the locations we had a, a lot of data from a lot of different countries, and we did see less, fewer climate change impacts in northern Europe compared to southern Europe, but also in the United States and in parts of Asia, it seemed to be showing us that the, the burdens would increase more in the southern cities, the southern locations than in the northern locations. And now that's, of course, we're talking now about the study period 1991 to 2018. It doesn't necessarily translate to the, that's what we ex would expect to see in the future. Right. And, you know, since most of our listeners are based in the U.S., um, could you give us maybe some some examples from locations in the U.S. that you looked at? Sure. So, you know, I encourage you to check out the paper because we have results for dozens of cities within the U.S. But just to sort of show some of the variety, we found that about eight deaths each year were attributable to climate change in Dallas, Texas. That was about that same figure was about 20 in Atlanta, where I live. And in Chicago, the number was actually 90 per year. And of course, Chicago is the location of that you know, very a horrible heat wave that occurred in 1995. That was one of the events that kick-started so much of the research in climate and health, and particularly in the uh, health effects of extreme temperatures. Yeah, yeah. It's so um, just sobering to kind of think about those those numbers and how they translate into into the real world and and every year. Yeah. Um. So what one thing that you know, I'm really curious about, and I imagine our listeners are too, is this issue of adaptation. And we've talked about it already a little bit. Um, but how do you, uh, you know, in this analysis, account for adaptations that might have occurred during the study period? So, you know, maybe people purchased air conditioners in 1996 in Chicago, uh, or maybe they adapted in other ways over time in different places. How do you treat this issue of adaptation in this particular study? That's a really great question because you're absolutely right that there is evidence that vulnerability to heat has decreased in some places over the study period. So our approach sort of implicitly accounts for adaptation to some extent in the sense that we use a single heat association that we estimated for each location. So that can be thought of as an approximation of the average effect during the time for which we had the data. So in some places it's possible that that would maybe overestimate the effect a little bit towards the beginning of the period or underestimate it a little bit towards the end of the period. But we're fairly confident that we managed to, you know, deal with the adaptation issue to a large extent by using our method of estimating a single association over the period for which we had the data. Great. So one of the issues, Noah, that uh, you and your co-authors know really well is that climate change does more than just you know increase the number of hot days and increase the amount of heat. Uh, it also reduces the number of cold days. And cold-related deaths around the world account for a substantial number of deaths. Um, this isn't something that you wrestle with in this particular paper, but I know, again, you and your co-authors have thought about it a lot. So can you give us a sense of kind of what the research tells us on this question of the net effects of climate change? That is, 
Um, you know, we know we'll have additional deaths due to heat, but we also might expect to have fewer deaths due to fewer cold days. So how do those two issues kind of balance out? Yeah, that's a really key point. I'm glad you asked because you're absolutely right that people die not only from exposure to heat, but also from exposure to cold temperatures. And in fact, studies have shown that in many places, the mortality burden from cold is actually quite a bit higher than it is for heat. And like with heat, deaths from cold occur from a range of causes. They increase in colder weather, both when it's very cold out and also when it's only moderately cold out. And that's one of the reasons why we see large burdens attributable to cold temperatures. And that leaves a really tough but important question about net effects. And what our team has found in past work is that in some cities and countries, the reduction in cold deaths would in fact be greater than the increase in heat deaths, so that the total amount of mortality from exposure to non-optimal temperatures may decrease under climate change. But in other places, that isn't true, and the additional heat deaths will be substantially larger than any benefits from having fewer cold days. So there's some evidence that those areas, meaning the places that are predicted to suffer net increases in temperature-related mortality under different climate change scenarios, will be disproportionately in warmer and poorer regions of the world, which is obviously a huge concern and something we need to really look into when we start thinking about adaptation and how to reduce the impacts and protect the vulnerable populations as we move forward and as climate change sort of starts to become more severe over time. Now, of course, what exactly will unfold in the future is very difficult to predict and will depend on things we just don't know yet. So one example is the total amount of warming that actually occurs, how quickly that warming happens, and also the speed of socioeconomic development is going to be really important because that may affect some of those potential adaptation strategies that we've been discussing through this podcast. And I can even think of some other variables that will affect, you know, the exact burden of temperature related mortality as we move through time, you know, the age structure of the population, and of course, investments, policy investments in um, health services and in strategies to try to reduce and protect uh, people who are vulnerable to heat. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um you know, it's such an interesting area of research and there's lots of great papers that have been coming out on on this topic recently. I, I've done a little bit of work on this topic lately too, and my sort of reading of it, and I'm curious to to hear if you would agree with this assessment, um, you know, my sense is that you know, you see in some regions a net increase in deaths because of climate change, in some regions a net decrease in deaths because of climate. But it seems to me that the effects uh, are more severe in the places where you see the net increases in death. So it seems to me pretty likely that the increased uh, deaths will outweigh the decreased deaths uh, from fewer cold days. Obviously, that's not sort of, you know, something that you can prove at this point, but um, that's at least my hunch from from what I've read. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, I think I think that sounds right in the sense that there will certainly be many places where those increasing heat deaths will far outweigh the reduction in cold deaths. And, um, you know, why that is, as I, as I mentioned, there, there's a range of explanations, but it's it's it will do with, you know, the ability, especially in warmer climates, to be able to adapt any more than they already have. And I think that's why we've seen that some of these places that are really likely to suffer are in already warm places and in also in places that have less capacity to adapt. Now, I don't necessarily think that all locations will have, you know, be 
worse off, uh, you know, when we sum up the reductions in cold and the increases in heat, but that it's something we certainly have to worry about. And again, you know, what's happened so far is not necessarily indicative of what's going to happen in the future because there's really so much uncertainty about the level of change that we're expecting and how quickly that happens. And that will really affect whether we'll be able to absorb, you know, those changes or whether they will sort of outpace our ability to uh, start to protect ourselves. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, one other thing that comes to mind is that, um, you know, if you imagine a future where people adapt to higher temperatures and are no worse off than they are today, that's still a cost because they're, you know, paying money to adapt uh, and, and adaptation is costly in a variety of ways. So, um yeah, this adaptation leading to no net change, even if that were the case, uh, is still a, a costly scenario uh, where we're investing time and resources into something um, that uh, that we're only having to do because of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I agree entirely. And that, you know, those resources are something we might be able to invest in in, in other ways to protect health or generally benefit society that we're now going to have to use to adapt to increases in heat and exposure to that heat. Yeah. So um, one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, and this is all so fascinating. I'd really encourage people to, to check out the paper um, to get uh, all of the detail that's embedded in it. Um, but as we mentioned a couple times, you know, you're part of a, of a pretty large uh, research group uh, that includes, you know, dozens of collaborators from around the world that have published lots of papers uh, on topics related to what we're talking about today. Um, what are you and your colleagues working on now? Yeah, it really has been a great experience to be involved in this, what we call multi-country, multi-city collaboration, which is the largest environmental health collaboration of its kind. I believe it now stands at 73 researchers from those 43 countries. And we started with a focus on the health effects of non-optimal temperature and projections of climate change impacts, so the things we've been talking about today. And we are still doing a lot of work in that area. So current research topics include analyses trying to focus in on the age and cause-specific effects of temperature. So to get more information on who's really most vulnerable and what's going on physiologically and those sorts of questions. And we're also doing extensions of some of those projection studies to try to quantify the benefits and costs of adaptation strategies, just as we mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago. But in addition, we've also decided to expand into many other areas of environmental health, some of which are also climate related. So, for example, we're now doing quite a bit of work on the health effects of air pollution, including from wildfires, which has obviously gotten a lot of attention over the past couple of years. And we're also working on the health impacts of extreme weather events. That's great. And yeah, it'll be so interesting to see what kind of results um, you and your team come up with in the, in the months and years ahead. I'll definitely be keeping a close eye on that. And I hope our listeners will too. Um, but let's move now, Noah, to our last question, our top of the stack segment, where we ask you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard uh, that you think is really cool uh, and you think our listeners might enjoy. And I'll start with um, an unusual recommendation. I'm going to recommend a Twitter account um, that uh, brings me great joy. It's called Traces of Texas. 
Um, I spend a lot of time in Texas. Uh, if you're interested in energy, you've also probably spent a lot of time in Texas or at least thought about it a lot. Um, and it's it's basically a, a Texas history uh, channel where you have great photos of old stuff in Texas, which often includes oil wells and things like that. But there's also really great nature uh, stuff in there as well. So for example, I was looking today at Traces of Texas and, and I learned that at one time uh, near where the city of Lubbock currently stands, there was a prairie dog colony that spread over 37,000 square miles and included more than 400 million prairie dogs. And as late as 1903, there were estimated 1 billion prairie dogs living in Texas. So if you're interested in Texas and the environment, uh, I think you'll enjoy Traces of Texas on Twitter. Uh, but how about you know what's on the top of your uh, literal or metaphorical reading stack? Okay. Well, it's not reading, but it's it's listening in this case. But if we're that sticking with totally the environmental counts. theme, <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to recommend the Floodlines podcast. Came out in March of last year, so 2020. So it's it's new, but not super new. And it's a multi-part series about Hurricane Katrina, and it does a really incredible job capturing the complexities of the event, the history leading up to it, and the aftermath. And obviously, it's highly relevant from an environmental and climate change perspective, but it also deals with a number of the social issues that contributed to the disaster. And many of those have been at the forefront of our national conversation over the past few years. So it's, it's super relevant and it really tells the story in what I think is a unique and um, really interesting way. And I use the podcast in one of my classes, so I've listened to it a couple times now and I continue to think it's a treasure even though it's certainly not always an easy listen from an emotional perspective because of you know, so much of the trauma and uh, disruption that so many people experience during and after that event. Yeah, I just looked it up. It looks fascinating. So Floodlines uh, from the Atlantic magazine, it looks like. Uh, I will definitely check this out. Thank you for that recommendation. Of course. Well, one more time, uh, Noah Skavronik uh, from Emory University, thank you so much for coming on the show today and helping us understand your work and your colleagues' work on the health impacts of climate change. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.